Paxos wears many hats in the blockchain ecosystem. It offers one of the better known stable coins, Pax, operates a cryptocurrency exchange, that's IPIT, and the company provides products that help large firms use blockchain to improve their settlement systems. But at the heart of Paxos, according to CEO Chad Cascarella, is to move the financial system onto the blockchain. It's a move he says could prevent future financial calamities like what the market saw in 2008. On this episode of The Scoop, Cascarilla talked about the growth of its stablecoin, why stablecoins are a better alternative for merchants. I hope you enjoy the episode. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the Blocks analyst Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the Block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. We are joined by a very special guest whose last name I will probably incorrectly pronounce. It's Chad at Paxos, the CEO, (laughs) their brave leader. Chad, I'm so sorry. How how do we say Casa Cardelli? That was not not close. Uh, Cascarella. Cascarelli. I understand it's intimidating, though. Ten letters. Yeah, it just keeps going. That's right. It just keeps going, yeah. So this is the... This is my favorite time to record podcasts. It's around 1.30 p.m. in New York, right? Or 2 o'clock? What time is it? It's 2.30, I've been told. We're very excited to dive in. Paxos is a New York-based blockchain firm. They are best probably known in the crypto space for operating ITBIT, which is a, which is a Bitcoin Ethereum exchange. They also have Pax, which is one of the larger, better-known stable coins. And they also are involved in settlement solutions and other blockchain enterprise enterprise blockchain efforts. We're really excited to talk to Chad. And like I was saying before we turn the mics on, I feel like when I talk to folks about what you guys do, they know Paxos, they know how long you've been at it, but maybe they only know you for one of those things as opposed to the sum of its parts. So I think a really cool place to start would be, you know, what is that elevator pitch that you convey to folks about what Paxos does and what exactly is the North Star? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and um, uh, it's really fundamental to what Paxos is about. So when we think about why we started the company, and I think about what got me excited to start the company, it's that there 
uh, is $600 trillion of assets in the world, and we believe they're going to end up on a blockchain. And maybe that takes 20 years or 30 years. I don't know how long it takes. But they're going to end up on a blockchain. And how you go from basically paper databases and COBOL mainframes and whatever system someone is on and really do a database upgrade is, I think, one of the big stories in financial services. I have a lot of conviction in it because of my background. I've seen how the plumbing of the financial system works, and it needs this kind of shift, and it will create a safer financial system. It's one that will be decentralized, not centralized. It will be open. It will have a lot of access. And so that was one of the – that was a really the big idea uh, that we have a lot of conviction in that led to us creating Paxos. And so the whole point of Paxos is how can we enable assets to move at the speed of the Internet? How can we enable the movement of any asset at any time in a trustworthy way? And our vision of how you need to do that is, uh, is by operating in a regulated way as a trust company, which we are. Operate as a custodian where we can hold people's assets where they're safer than if they were even in a bank and be able to put them into a blockchain environment. So if you think about what we do, whether it's Ipbit or whether it's PAX, uh, whether it's some of the new products we're going to be launching soon, it's all about we're acting as a custodian, we're holding your assets, we're, in the case of real-world assets, tokenizing them, and in the case of many real-world assets or otherwise, we have a whole post-trade product suite that can help um, enable you to use our custody services and our tokenization services. So it's all about we're going to hold your assets and we're going to transform them for you to be able to go use them as you want and maybe even use them on some of the products that we have. So you co-founded Cedar Hill Capital, right? And That's you were right. there for 15 years. Thinking about it from the asset management portfolio manager perspective, how does what Paxos do change the game for, let's just say, the firm you were at before Paxos? Yeah. Well, there's a couple uh, problems that we saw. Um, and from the perspective I was sitting in at that time, one, uh, this was an asset management company, so it's a financial services company. Uh, at the same time, it's a user of the financial system. And uh, the third thing is we were investing in financial services companies. So it was really completely consent, uh, centered on um, understanding the financial system, using it, and building a financial services company. That gave us a really great vantage point to understand a lot of the problems in the financial system. As we went through the financial crisis, um, we were short subprime, uh, uh, short commercial real estate, and then we actually created a distressed mortgage fund and were long distressed mortgages. And that whole process, we really climbed into the plumbing of the system. And it was so clear to us from that vantage point that the plumbing of the system was actually exacerbating the crisis in a really fundamental way. And if you look at where the world is today even, the plumbing hasn't changed at all. There's more capital, there's more regulation, but the actual way things work, it's still COBOL mainframes, it's still slow, multi-day settlements. If you have another financial crisis, we're going to have the same systemic problems that we had 10 years ago. And that to me is really scary. And it was having that perspective and then coming across blockchain that led us to create Paxos. And that's where this conviction comes from, that taking assets from where they sit today, putting them into a blockchain decentralized world that has open access will be one of the biggest things that happens because it creates real freedom for people to be able to control um, their own financial, uh, financial lives in a way that you can't do right now. You're always dependent upon some centralized intermediary and you have to be dependent that they're going to survive or they're going to survive because they've been guaranteed that place by the state. And that's not a vision of the world that we really think 
um, should persist. It needs to change and it needs to get better. So you mentioned blockchain a few times, but when we, we haven't mentioned like a specific blockchain, right? So Paxos is Paxos stable coins built on Ethereum. Do you think, like you, you previously mentioned, you think many assets are going to be tokenized on a blockchain. Do you think Ethereum is going to carry that large share of the token asset tokenization market? Uh, the short answer is yes, and I don't know uh, at the same time. So the reason we put on Ethereum is because that's where thousands of tokens already are. It's battle-tested. People are using it. There are drawbacks with Ethereum, just like with any blockchain, because these are still early stage. There are um, real questions about whether or not it'll be able to scale. There's real questions about uh, some of the changes to um, how the database is kept in sync. And I mean, there is a proof of work or proof of stake. There's lots of things that need to happen. But I think Ethereum is in the pole position. But it doesn't guarantee anything. Um, there are certainly other chains that have interesting value propositions, whether it's EOS or Tron or Stellar or you kind of go down the list. There's a, a variety of what I would call these blockchains that are trying to be the ledger uh, of record is the way I would describe it. And I don't, we don't have particular viewpoint of which one it'll be um, beyond it's very clear Ethereum is the one at the moment. Um, but there um, are a lot of things that, uh, I guess there's a saying, many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. And so we don't know exactly where it's going to end up. And our goal is to tokenize assets. It's not to say, this is the database you have to use. And so we're talking with other databases around how we can tokenize assets onto those aside from Ethereum. We're going to be very customer driven. If everyone tomorrow says they want to go put it on a whole new uh, blockchain, we're going to put it on a whole new blockchain. Our goal here is to tokenize assets, not to tell you which one to use. Right, because we, we've seen Tether start like moving off like Omni, which is built on Bitcoin, to like Ethereum and Tron, right? So yeah. do, you, do you see that as like a possible future for PAX stablecoins, where if there's demand on these chains, you will be happy to deploy PAX stablecoins on EOS, on Tron, on Stellar? Absolutely. So, I mean, clearly, I mean, to peel back the onion a bit, um, it sounds like obviously you're blockchain agnostic to an extent, at least as it pertains to these public blockchains. But I'd like to get back just quickly to to what what you see as blockchain helping to avoid or ameliorate the next financial crisis. Sitting in your seat, making bets on the markets when all of this was going down. You seem to have made out pretty well because you were you were on the right side of some of those bets. How could have blockchain helped other folks who, you know, were not? Well, if you think, um, uh, and you said suddenly all the world is using blockchain. Yes, you know, in okay. 2008 or 2007, 2006. Yeah, 2006. Or, you know, it's 2025 and everyone's on blockchain now. How would like a financial crisis be different? Well, let's think about a couple of the ways in which the fact that you're using a centralized system exacerbate the crisis. We can drill into it a little bit. Let's do that. That'd be yeah. great. So, you know, here's Lehman Brothers. Lehman fails. Everyone thought letting Lehman Brothers fail would be okay. Uh, the Federal Reserve thought it was going to be fine. Uh, but what's really clear is no one actually really understood the, the plumbing of the system. And what happens is you don't settle a trade immediately. You and I agree to yep. a trade. T plus two. Right, so we'll settle on T2 or T3 or T5. Some things can be T30, loans or other things. 
But we're agreed to a trade. It's not like, hey, all right, um, frankly, even in the world of Bitcoin, you don't really settle instantaneously no. either. Very hard. Especially in the OTC world. And we should define settlement, which is the asset and the payment move at the exact same moment in time and at the exact same moment of the trade. Now, that would be like the end of the sin qua non of the, of the trading world, which is called real-time gross settlement. The trade and the, the settlement happen at the exact same, team, exact same moment. Okay, so that doesn't happen. So the next great best thing would be what's called, uh, sorry to use so much lingo here, but it's called delivery versus payment. Delivery of the asset versus the payment for it. So the next thing, if you can't make the trade also be the settlement, well, at least have the settlement happen simultaneously where I send you something and you send me the payment. That doesn't even really happen. Okay, so now, not only is the trade not the settlement, but even the settlement, each leg moves on its own. Well, you can imagine what happens. Okay, uh, Frank and I do a trade. I'm going to send you, I don't know, let's just pick a thousand gold bars. You're sure. going to send me a thousand dollars. I wish that was the right price, but it's not. So I'll send you a thousand uh, gold bars. You send me a thousand dollars. Well, who goes first? Well, I mean, this is like almost like a, you know, the drug dealer or hostage dilemma. You send me the hostages or I send you the briefcase of cash. Um, okay, but aren't so, there standards around like what defines default and what defines... Well, there is definitely standards around what defines default, but here's the problem. We are agreeing to like a trade and we're agreeing to a settlement and suddenly I, maybe I go first and I'm sending it to you. And guess what? You thought you were going to get paid by someone else and then you, and you didn't. And so the whole system is predicated on all these settlements happening and they're layered and they're layered for the next day, the next three days, the next five days, the next week. So you have all these settlements that are layered into place, and um, you're expecting that you're going to be receiving from somebody, and then you can pay someone else out. And uh, because it's not happening right when the trade happens, these build up, and it's counterparty risk. What's the risk that your counterparty will fail? What's the risk that if that counterparty fails, other people will fail? And this whole domino happens, in fact, because the plumbing is preventing settlement from happening um, both simultaneously and in real time. So you need to have simultaneous settlement between me and you. And if we could do it at the moment we agree to the trade, now there's really no counterparty risk in the system. You don't need it. So, and by the way, how does the, settle, how does the, sorry, the financial system normally solve this problem? Okay, well, you and I can't agree to a trade. We can't decide who goes first. We're going to use JP Morgan or whatever, Citibank or somebody else as our intermediary. They're basically an escrow agent. The banking system is really an escrow agent to us doing this trade because we're afraid one of us will fail. So we're going to use this person and they're called uh, a big bank. So we don't think they'll fail. Oh, but they could because it's Lehman Brothers. No one planned that a big institution could fail. And once they fail, um, everyone who is relying on them to act as intermediary so if you allow these counterparties to engage directly in a trustless network, one or peer-to-peer, -peer, you remove that the risk of having that acting escrow agent. That's centralized, too big to fail. Now they're called too big to fail. They have more capital and more regulation. Mm -hmm. But you didn't remove the fact that you have a centralized system. important institutions. Yeah, so how, does that, how does that work? Like walk, walk me through that process if the world has adopted blockchain as their intermediary. Well, what happens is you can remove the need to rely on a centralized intermediary uh, for all kinds of different types of settlement. Now, it's not going to happen immediately for every asset class. So I just want to be, you know, we're, 
you know, not just blue sky thinkers here. It's going to take time. There's an adoption curve and a transformation that happens. But a decentralized system is always more stable and more resilient than a completely centralized one. You can control a centralized one better. A decentralized one has more resilience. And, uh, you know, that's why democracy is so much more responsive than, for instance, you know, a monarchy or whatever it might be. Um, so an autocracy. And it's the same thing in the financial system. You've created, you know, a really stagnant system reliant on too big to fail institutions where they're not, it's not possible for them to innovate at the size and the scale that they're at with the regulation they have, and we're all dependent upon them. But it doesn't remove the fact that it's just a centralized system. So in a future where you now have a decentralized world where counterparties can programmatically transact with each other without needing somebody else to be the escrow agent, you completely open up a whole new possibility for innovation, um, for access to the system, because the only people that can access the system now are the ones that the big escrow agents will open accounts for. Well, in the crypto world, you see what a problem that is. Nobody can get a bank account because everyone needs a bank because they're the ones who are the only ones allowed to hold cash. Now, that's not the case in a stablecoin world, but we can get to that in a later uh, point of the conversation. But you can see how putting assets into a decentralized framework can really completely change the system. So how is Paxos, what are the solutions you guys are offering that get us to that point? And you mentioned not tackling the entire market at once, but on an asset, or at least what I'm taking from what you said, an, an asset by asset approach. So what are those solutions and which assets are you starting with? I'm, I think precious metals are probably one of the more obvious um, or one of the um, corners of the market that would make the most sense. Yeah, I think um, when we think about um, assets, we put them into some four broad buckets. You have crypto assets. They're already on a blockchain. Uh, you might need a custodian. You know, we can provide services, and we do. Um, there's cash. And when I mean by cash, I mean fiat cash. Um, there are commodities. And then lastly, there's really kind of securities. That's like stocks and bonds. And the reason I grouped them in those categories is they have uh, different regulatory regimes for these, and they have different ways they move today. So let's take, um, and we can work through a couple of these, but let's talk about cash for a second. We have a stable coin. Um, so uh, if I tell you a little bit more about Paxos, I can explain cash. Yeah. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about how um, we had this vision for how the world can change. Fundamental to that was, uh, for Paxos to become a regulated financial institution in and of itself. It's not that we don't want to create a large amount of innovation, but we're trying to think, how can you create the most amount of innovation? It means you need to have the most widespread adoption. That inevitably involves regulation. Um, and so we went out and created a trust company in the state of New York, and this is safer than a bank. The reason a trust company is safer than a bank is because if someone gives us their assets, we hold that assets in their name as trustee segregated. Paxos fails, your assets are still there. You give your money to a bank, the bank, it's a loan. The bank then goes out and uses that money to go lend to somebody else. And so a bank is actually riskier than a trust company. That's why financial market infrastructure in the US has historically been set up as a trust company in the state of New York. So that's what we did, that's foundational for us. It creates the ability for us to offer a variety of different products. So in the case of cash, we're a regulated trust company. Someone sends money to us. We're holding it in that client's name. 
And we then can, and if you, for instance, send me $1,000, this is a, a, a you know, conventional stablecoin product, I'll send you 1,000 Ethereum tokens. But now, doesn't that, I mean, I think some folks might look at that from the traditional markets and think, doesn't that just introduce more counterparty risk? Because now not only am I relying on the U.S. federal government that this money is going to be worth something and that the economy is going to be strong and there's going to be good monetary policy, but I'm also then relying on Paxos doing its job to hold the coins and to make sure that that peg uh, stays true to one-to-one. Well, I think there's an element of that. Um, so because we're regulated, our stablecoin is regulated. So, and we have a bunch of different auditors so people can feel comfortable about using Paxos. So um, we have the Department of Financial Services does an exam of four to six weeks of us. Grant Thornton does our internal auditing. Deloitte & Touche, a big four auditor, does our external auditing. Uh, with them, audits our bank accounts that have the cash in them. Now, importantly, the way we have it set up is the cash is basically held in FDIC-insured accounts or T-bills. So you're only taking U.S. government credit risk with your cash when you put it with us. You're not taking any commercial bank risk. What happens normally is you're taking commercial bank risk. You put your money in a bank account. If it's more than the FDIC limit, if that bank fails, you have a problem. In our case, we're putting that uh, cash into either FDIC-insured accounts or U.S. government T-bills. So they really are um, very safe. Uh, clearly, you have to rely on the U.S. government not um, uh, inflating away the value of your dollar, but I think you always have that risk. Um, and by the way, that's what happens. It's devalued 97% since you know Bretton Woods, whatever it is. So it's gone down a lot, but it's a small amount every year, so people feel comfortable using it as a medium of exchange. It's not a store of value. It's a medium of exchange, and that's fine. Um, and so, But here's a key difference. You don't rely on commercial banks, which are really acting as bad middleware. When you deposit money with the bank, you're tied to the bank's hours of activity, nine to five, five days a week. Um, if you want to move it and you're overseas, it could take multiple days, high fees to do wiring and other transfers. You know, this is really inefficient. And by the way, it's not programmable. You put cash on a blockchain, this is a really simple example of it, you've now made cash move 24-7, instantaneously, programmable. And anyone can have an account. So anybody can open an account in their low-cost accounts. It's really hard opening even consumer bank accounts these days. There's 50 million unbanked people just in the US, several billion worldwide. All you need is an Ethereum wallet and you can have a bank account. You completely changed the access, you changed the dependencies in the system, you're not reliant on certain institutions anymore. You're not reliant, reliant on their hours. I think there's less than 10 banks in the U.S. that even have APIs, right? So, I mean, talk about, like, you're relying on old technology at the core. Like, I, I, one of the very largest banks in the country hasn't changed the core programming language since the early 70s. They do two upgrades a year on the core deposit system. It is a systemically important financial institution. You know, I won't say name the names here, but um, everyone knows it. It's a household name. That's true for every single one of these institutions. It's very, very hard for them to uh, take uh, what they have. They might have a nice fancy app or whatever it is, but the core systems are going back 40 or 50 years. So we need to get to a new world. So it sounds like what, what you'd like for Paxos to be, with Pax at the center of it, is an alternative, not just... Well, not just creating systems and solutions for institutions, money managers, and banks that they can use to upgrade their systems, but also 
on the consumer side, a replacement for the banking uh, applications and infrastructure that exists today. So if I want to send money, if I want to save money, if I want to store money, I could do that through Paxos and with Pax. You can. And what we've done, like uh, last week, we announced a partnership with um, uh, ST Coins and Hopi, um, where they're able to create their own stable coin using our infrastructure. And that's really us offering our trust as a service for other institutions in the space who aren't regulated to be able to build on our infrastructure, uh, both our technology and regulatory infrastructure, in order to be able to offer very safe products for their customers. And so that's one example. We'll have some other examples shortly of firms taking advantage of that uh, service. And I think that's a great example of we're able to help customers, and a lot of them might not even necessarily be in the US. We can help people worldwide. Uh, they may be customers of Paxos, but they could just be customers of our customers. And so uh, that's really exciting with the ST Coins announcement. Uh, I hope he's the number two exchange in the world by most measures. And um, you know, there's a whole uh, number of other exchanges that have the same type of challenges that um, uh, Hopi and others have in terms of being able to have bank accounts, being able to effectively be able to service their customers. We can help provide that service. So we can provide this trusted service as an infrastructural layer. It could be accessed by a consumer. It's more likely probably going to be accessed by an institution that has a lot of consumers. Um, but we also we build products on our infrastructure. We encourage other people to do that too. So, so what's your opinion on something like MakerDAO and Dai? Right. So that they take the decentralized ethos to like the final level of sorts. You don't have an intermediary managing your or holding or custodying your ETH. You just lock up your ETH to generate a stable coin that lives on Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a certain logic to that. Um, uh, I always go back to um, how do you create the most amount of adoption? And so the fact is uh, there's five or six trillion of FX transactions a day. 80% of that, the US dollar is on one side of it. So how do you basically begin to penetrate not just the crypto market with uh, blockchain cash, but how do you penetrate remittances? How do you penetrate payments? How do you penetrate FX trading? Is that really going to happen through this die method? I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, and you know, there's some, a lot of things that need to be battle tested even for it to get beyond Why where do it's you think at it's right unlikely? now. Well, because um, because they have like little mini wars between. Yeah, is, it, is it because? Every, <laughs> every is it like week? because it's it's like a multi-step process? You have to first get ETH, and then you have to open a collab CDP and whatnot, and generate. And you're still reliant upon the value of those underlying assets in order for the die to hold value, right? Um, and so, and it's not being used right now as a medium of exchange. Um, it's like arguably uh, kind of, it's attempting to be used like that, but it's not really that. It's basically a synthetic version of a dollar, effectively. Um, but it's managed in a way that's programmatic. There's still people who have to maintain the programming and other things. So it's not truly decentralized. Um, it's maybe uh, not politically uh, controlled, so to speak, by a government. But that's a different thing. Like there's still like a, you know foundation and other um, uh, groups that are involved with it, right? So it's not really um, getting you away from uh, reliance on somebody. It's just getting you away from reliance on fiat.
Now I'd like to thank our phenomenal sponsor, BlockFi. With BlockFi, you can earn interest on your crypto and access the value of your digital assets without selling. The BlockFi interest account offers up to 6.2% APY on Bitcoin and up to 3.3 APY on Ether in a time of low-yielding investments, and it's consistently shown the best rates in the industry. All of the blocks Bitcoin and Ethereum holders wish they had signed up earlier. BlockFi right now is offering the Scoop listeners, that's you, an exclusive no-minimum-deposit promotion. You can start earning up to 6.2% APY on your crypto with no minimum balance required. Just visit BlockFi.com scoop. That's BlockFi.com scoop to get started with your exclusive offer. Sign up for the BlockFi interest account and make your first deposit to start earning interest on your crypto today. There's a few directions I want to. I was thinking about going in. Obviously, you brought up the elephant in the room or the elephant down at 60 Center Street or who was there yesterday, our friends over in Hong Kong at Tether and Bitfinex. Do you, what do you make of that situation? Like, do you think about it? Frequently, I, I, I remember when you came online with PAX, and the same thing with, with Gemini Dollar, you, there, was, there was a demand, right? Or at least a, a demand you saw in the market for a regulated stablecoin. You guys have picked up market share, uh, Circle USDC. Um, uh, I don't know by which means they're regulated or not, but they're at least got some US-based players backing them. Um, they they're picked they're up, not actually regulated. They picked up... Um, yeah, I, I'm actually not They sure. have money transmission licenses, et cetera. Sure, sure, sure. But, uh, but not there, the, no they don't regulator have a approved license. it. Yeah, no, no regulator yeah, approved it. No one point. gave them the green light to move forward with the product itself. Yeah. How do you, when I talk to traders in Asia, um, a lot of them are quite happy with an unregulated stablecoin platform. Who are the people who want a regulated stablecoin? And why do you think, with all this stuff going on with Tether and Bitfinex, that you guys haven't eaten up more of their market share? Um, I think things take time. Uh, I've been in the financial markets for a long time. We were talking about that. And I've seen examples of new products get launched. And um, sometimes you can't get enough liquidity when new products get launched. Other times, it can happen immediately. Most of the time, if it's going to happen, it's slow, 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 and then all at once. And it's kind of like everyone is standing on one side of a ship and everyone runs to the other side. And it looks like it's stable when everyone's standing so on one side. So who are the few folks that have run over to the other side of the ship? For They're institutions. They're institutions. I mean, just a perfect example is with ST Coin and Hopi. You know, this is a very large institution and player in the space. I think it's inevitable that we're going to get um, more change that happens. I kind of talked about a little bit about what's the whole point of this. There's $15 trillion of M2. Does anyone think Visa and MasterCard is going to use Tether? Come on. Does anyone think that anyone in the institutional world is going to use Tether? Come on. It's never going to happen. This is the best it can ever be for them. No one, this is not going to go anywhere aside from where it's at. We're looking at the big picture about how you can change the whole financial system. All what you have here is, I think, um, a, a smaller approach to solving a, a problem that existed but is never going to be able to get to the scale that we're trying to talk about here. Don't tell that to Suzu. No, so it's interest, It's an interesting point. I'm going to plug my roommate's uh, beer company because they actually accept Paxos. It's called Taproom. They're based in Brooklyn. 
and you can pay with with Paxos. Yeah, you well, the next Paxos Pax. party there. That's what we're gonna yeah, do. No, yeah, no, I right. think that this is um, my roommate Nick is gonna owe me a six pack. But <laughs> why do I benefit? Going, you know, let's think about let's not think about institutions. Let's think about regular people for a second, like me, simple people. Why do I benefit <laughs> when I go to Tap Room and I pay with Pax, which um, seems complicated on the face of it, as opposed to just hitting my, my uh, iPhone against the uh, Apple Wallet reader? Do, am I am, are the fees lower? What, what? Why do I benefit? Well, first of all, I think you're you're absolutely right. Pax is still complicated. And this is what I was talking about before. It hasn't penetrated into the traditional payment rails. So that's where it needs to go. That's where you need to make it so simple that you don't even know that it's, on, it's not blockchain cash. Like you have no idea, right? You just happen to have, uh, you have a wallet that's on your phone and it says, hey, you got $1,000 and you can go spend it and you tap and it goes. That's where you have to get to. Now Fair we're enough. not there yet. Fair enough. But when, so the, the merchant customer relationship. So when my packs goes from me, to tap room, is that lower fees than the credit card networks interacting with each other if it's going wallet be. to wallet? Okay. So, I mean, if you think about you're a merchant, and merchants will feel this more than the consumer because of the smart way in which the payment system works now, but uh, which is that uh, consumers don't feel any of the pain, it's all merchants. Uh, but essentially, you even go to Starbucks, I'll give you, this is a perfect example of what we were talking about before, which is settlement risk. I know it might not seem that way, but it is. So you go to Starbucks, you go, hey, give me a latte. They give you a latte. You tap your card on there. That card is just saying, yes, Frank has open line on that card, and you can give him that cup of coffee. We'll give you the money in a couple days. And then Starbucks gets it either the next day or maybe two days. depends on what, the mer- what kind of deal they have. So the merchant has given you your asset, right, which you then consume, they haven't received the money yet. They don't receive it for two days. So there's actually all the settlement risk, even for retailers. In the world where you're moving packs and you went to the tap room and you don't pay with a credit card, you pay with packs, they immediately get the dollars. It's sitting in the merchant's hands. He can go buy something with it immediately. It's not some IOU he's going to get in a day or two. And you can imagine that right across the entire economy. That's fantastic. And so um, I think that we have to get to a different place with the penetration of stable coins into traditional payments. But I can tell you, we're having a lot of these conversations. It will happen. I know people right now have a credit card loaded up with packs and they can spend it. That's very early. It's still not that great, you know, admittedly, but it's, it's just happening. Dorothy. It's just Dorothy. It might just be, it might just be people with Paxos, but that's not the point. That's not the point. Uh, it's, but I think the real issue is that it can happen. Fair enough. And I think it will get there, and we're having conversations that, do, that it will get there. And by the way, it'll happen remittances. It'll happen in FX trading. But is that where, is that where Tether is going to take the industry? Is that where it's going to take no. the financial system? But maybe no. Libra. Maybe Facebook's it's, Libra. Yeah, there might be. You know, there's all kinds of articles about whether it'll happen or not happen. Uh, very ambitious. But, you know, I think that's what you need to be thinking. That's where we're trying to think about. How are we going to change the financial system? Right, so... so how do you convince people that Paxos is the right stablecoin versus Gemini, Dollar, or CUSD, right? Because they're basically, I mean, they're all basically the same thing at this point. Well, that's the interesting thing. Say the thing about regulations. Uh, well, I'm going to say the thing about regulation, but it's even more than that. So every stablecoin isn't made uh, equal. Even though everyone is backed by a dollar, if you can't redeem it in the same time frames. So will someone give you instant redemptions? Will someone give you instant creations? Will someone charge you a redemption fee, a creation fee? Will they um, be able to facilitate you over the weekend? So you might, 
not you might have uh, $1 from somebody and they charge you a redemption fee or they won't be able to turn it into cash over the weekend, and then you have uh, something that's not the same as someone else's. And so that creates fluctuation and utility curves that are different. Um, having regulation, you want to, we describe it as, we have a bankruptcy-proof stablecoin. Nobody else does. USDC is not bankruptcy-proof. They're money-transmitting, uh, and they're not approved by any regulator. It doesn't mean that they're not trustworthy companies and et cetera, but nonetheless, it's not a regulated stablecoin. They're not using a trust company to hold people's cash fully segregated from any operating activities. You know, not only are we doing that, it's required, and there's oversight that proves it. We have an independent board, all these other controls. Bankruptcy-proof stablecoin is something everyone should care about. The last thing you want to do is say, oh, I thought I had $1,000 to spend at the tap room. Guess what? Uh, it's only uh, it's at 50 cents now because it wasn't really backed. Or I could go make loans to my other company, or I could go do this or go do that. Or you know what? You know, we commingled funds because it's not a trust company. It's, you know, we just have money lying around. And so, I mean, all that's possible. So where do you want to, like, what kind of stablecoin do you want to base your system on? If you're saying, how are we going to change the financial system in a fundamental way, in a way that we can all trust and that we don't even have to think about, you're not going to do that in the way we have it set up now in the crypto world. It's going to have to grow up and be something far more robust and powerful. That's what we're trying to build. And it's because I really, one, know the financial system and believe we need to change it, that we built Paxos this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... I mean, this kind of goes back to my question at the beginning. You have the post-trade solutions, you have custody, you have the OTC desk, you have the exchange. If if Paxo seems like the right bet now, does it make sense to have all of your eggs in these different baskets without that unified vision? Or do you open yourself up to the risks of of not of not having that focus is, is what I'm Yeah, and um so when we're talking about what what is the unifying vision for what we do here? It's we're going to hold people's assets. And aside from the case in crypto, we'll tokenize those assets. And then we'll provide some services for you to be able to, and products for you to be able to take advantage of the fact that they're tokenized, either with us or other people. And so when we think about our exchange, we think, hey, we're a custodian of your crypto assets. You want a safe place to trade it? We can be a safe place for you to trade it as our custody customer. So we're offering you that service. But if you want to go trade it somewhere else, we're fine with that. So in some cases, as I think you pointed out here, we've built products that showcase the fact that we're acting as a custodian and hold people's assets. Increasingly, what Paxos is going to be about is we want to showcase how other people are using what Paxos has built from a, both a regulatory infrastructure and a technology infrastructure standpoint. But the space, need, you have to go through stages. You know? So we created these products, and then we go out and say, hey, you could use our infrastructure to do this too. That's interesting. Um, I think it'd be cool to go back to Facebook a little bit just to get your get your opinion on on what they're doing and whether or not um, we've been asking a lot of guests recently whether or not they think it will even happen, let alone succeed as the way they've outlined it. Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's very ambitious. Uh, I think that's clear. I think. Um, I think it's still very... Um, it's kind of funny, right, how Coinbase was one of the members, Wilts being a member of the USCC consortium. It's almost like they're... Yeah, well, I mean, I, maybe it all fits together. I, I, it's hard to speculate exactly where they were going, but they didn't create their own stablecoin. They have a shared stablecoin. Libra could, is kind of like a shared stablecoin, so maybe it's, it fits with this concept of being... But, I, you know, that's uh, I'm just purely speculating there. Um, 
But, but I, I do think that it's very ambitious what Libra's trying to do. I think it's still unclear exactly how the product, what features it's really going to have, what will be backing it, how exactly it'll work. So it's really hard to speculate on whether the product itself will work. What is clear is Facebook, which I think is great for the space, has endorsed the concept of using blockchain for 2 billion plus consumers. To me, that's awesome. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Blockchain is gonna change the financial system. And guess what? Facebook is telling us that too. And the smart people at Facebook, like David Marcus and others who've been in, um, you know, and other transformative companies like PayPal, that's what they think. That's great. You don't have to believe me. You can believe um, uh, uh, Facebook and, and others. Um, I think that's awesome. The next um, thing is, um, you know, trying to take this through the political process that they're caught up in is really hard to handicap. You just can't tell where things are going to go. You know, it'd almost be like, let's have a, we can mark this to market after the August recess and see if some crazy bill makes it out of Congress that could completely change regulation for not just Libra, but for the whole crypto space. That's possible. That is really hard to handicap. And there are all kinds of regulatory pressures and uh, powers of persuasion that can be brought to bear on uh, Facebook and Libra um, that we can't even necessarily see. And so it's really hard to handicap what the combination of that type of political pressure and still early stages of the product. What does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, and it could have broader policy and, and regulatory implications for the entire space. I mean, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it or read up on, on, on the Senate Banking uh, Committee hearing that happened in Washington today. But if it, if it was anything like the Facebook one two weeks ago, it, it's troubling from my seat to see the level of, at least with the Senate, the, the congressional hearing was a little bit different, but the level of misinformation about the differences between, or rather the nuances between different blockchain-based assets and, and networks. Um, but even more fascinating... And that's, by the way, that's where I would really plug Coin Center and Jerry Brito. He is doing an unbelievable job, in my opinion, and we've been like one of the founding members of Coin Center, uh, to go out there and really educate they people. They are, the and they are. And along thank with God for them, groups. because I think they made a huge difference for all of us in the space. Jeremy Allaire, who is the CEO of uh, Circle, and which, which is the founding member of the USDC Consortium, they've moved, or at least are planning to move a lot of their operations over to Bermuda, just for you know, they run an asset. They run a crypto asset exchange that trades innumerable assets. That some of which it's not clear if they're securities or not. And from their perspective, they're always talking about this a lot about the lack of a regular of regulatory clarity here in the United States. Uh, Paxos and Gemini and others have kind of kind of touted that they've taken this regulatory first approach. But surely there are some aspects or things that you think might be worth changing. Or is this, I just feel like there's this notion, right, of the regulatory environment for crypto blockchain firms is so confusing and, and hard to manage. Is that, is there any validity to that? I think there's a lot of validity to that. And, you know, we're, we were the first to go out and get a trust company. We did this in May of 2015. Uh, we've been regulated for a long time. You know, it is, there's, a, it's a, there's a, a lot of burdens on being a regulated institution. We have a lot of resources. We're able to carry those burdens, but it's very real cost. And, um, and it's a cost in terms of um, a lot of 
in many ways, uh, excess protections that aren't necessarily needed, but because you're trying to fit into an old regulatory regime, they're required. And, so um, what specifically, like what is something that you guys are doing on the regulatory front, which either from your perspective in traditional capital, uh, capital markets, just doesn't make sense or you wish would be fixed or improved? Yeah, well, um, you know, there's all kinds of different like uh, policies and procedures that you have to write out and put into place that you put into place as if you know what the product is going to be. But this is not a mature product. Some of these products don't even ever existed before. So you're creating a whole way of doing things and documenting things before you even launch it. And you're writing up huge um, thing, uh, dossiers on what you're going to do. And then literally they could be out of date you know, five minutes after you launch and you got to change them all over again. So there isn't, there'd be what I would call a concept of having a sandbox that could be really helpful because you can't test products, see what's going to happen, understand what they're going to do, and then invest in huge amounts of infrastructure in order to maintain it as if it's going to be successful. So you have to build everything as if it's already going to be succeed. So your cost um, to iterate is well, so yeah, high. Most of the time when you build a product, the, the, the problem that lies ahead of it is whether or not people will want it, buy it, use it. Things you and didn't even expect and understand. Now you have that upfront cost of managing. You have huge upfront costs. So that's an interesting question. It brings me back to when I was in the courtroom yesterday. Uh, the, the Bitfinex attorneys and the New York Attorney General and Judge Cohen were going over what is Tether. What is, like, what is a stablecoin? And, you know, the, the judge asked, well, does it fluctuate in value? Does that make it a security? Um, all resting on this, this case that Bifinex has, which is that the New York Attorney General is overstepping its authority because it's not a commodity, it's not FX, and it's not um, a security. What, what are stable coins? Well, what, what would you define PACs as? Is it a commodity? Well, Is it FX? We'll, we'll be really clear. Um, in the case of PACs, they're not securities. And that's because all we've done is take, we've taken ownership of a specific asset and put it on a distributed database. So I describe it. What we've done is we've done a database upgrade of dollars. They're dollars that are sitting in an account now, and you have the, um, it's almost like a check, but it's a check that's put on a distributed database that can move around. So it would just be whatever the asset it is. That's right. Now, by the way, if you're not fully backed by dollars, you might be a security then. So we've been really clear, and we've, done, we've talked with the SEC and others on this. If, you aren't one, if you're not one for one backed, you might be a security because you can fluctuate in value a lot. You're not just representing one asset. You're representing a basket of assets. That kind of starts to sound like a security, right? Especially if there's does somebody the managing fact, it. Does the fact that Paxos moves in price, even if you can redeem it one-to-one, -one, does that play into whether or not, is that a question hanging over it? No. Okay. No, because at the end of the day, um, anyone can come redeem it for us for one, you know, we're not, we're not changing the price. The market can change whatever it wants for the price of PAX, but it should be instantaneously arbitraged, which it generally is. Mm -hmm. So it might trade a small premium or discount, uh, and that was, to get to the question, is that's why all stable coins aren't equal, because some of them trade a significant premiums and discounts. That's pretty interesting. Because it was the first time I even thought of the question of what exactly, what asset class a stablecoin would fall under. Um, do you think it'd make more sense for all of these, and I don't think it would based off what you said, or I don't think you would agree that it would based off what you said, for all these blockchain-based 
assets and cryptocurrencies to just fall under a new framework managed by a new regulator um, who can, you know, just oversee all of it. Well, I mean, in, this wasn't a means to set up another regulator, but I was one of the founding members of Adam, which is the Association for Digital Asset Markets. The idea is that it sets up rules and um, uh, conduct uh, and um, something that everyone agrees to, and there's uh, 10 founding members and others, and we've come up with a code of conduct we'll be releasing soon, and we hope others will join, and there are others that are joining as well. Um, so we have that framework in mind, and this is really not meant to be a regulatory agency or even an SRO, a self-regulatory agency, but maybe over time it might. I think some assets are very clearly fitting into old regimes. If you issue equity, but you put it on a blockchain, all you've done is put it on a different database. It doesn't mean it's not equity anymore, right? Crypto, to me, is really clearly, it's, that's, a, that's property. You own a spot on a database. There are rules for property. It shouldn't be treated like a security and it shouldn't be treated like money. It's basically, it's a spot on a database that happens to be fungible, but that doesn't mean that it needs to be um, a security at all. Gold, you put gold on a blockchain, nothing changes. You put cash on a blockchain, I'm not sure what changes. It's just cash, you've now moved it. It's when you start now, you know, you start combining certain things together, it could fall into a gray area or you own a, something that might not be a security, but it could be an asset. So that's where I think crypto has gone into the gray areas is, do you have property or do you have a security? And that has, has crossed over for like certain things like ICOs or um, certain types of tokens of certain databases. That's really tricky. I don't have a great answer for what that represents. But I think some things are, people are just looking at it through the wrong lens. You know what I mean? There, there's no reason in some cases for even to be all this regulation over, I've now put an asset on a different database, so suddenly like this is something completely newfangled. Like there's nothing new about that. Um, but I think blockchain itself is confused because it's called blockchain. If you just said, I put it on a distributed database, it's a distributed database. Right, and you know you can work off of that framework a lot easier, and then it doesn't get quite as complicated. And I think that oftentimes is lost because this first principles understanding is confused. Um, no, I I think that's a I think that's a fine place to end. And Chad, we appreciate you coming on the scoop. It was great to be here with both of you. I'm looking forward to coming back. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save 
every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Tire Market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.